This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hey, everybody, it's Lon Seidman. It's time once again for your weekly wrap-up, and we've got a bunch of stuff to talk about this week, a lot of depth here. Uh, Patreon, I think, is in trouble. We'll talk about why. AT&T is sued over a 5G claim that they're now putting on many popular smartphones. It's not actually 5G, but they say it is. Uh, We're going to look at the lifespan of a Chromebook, Windows Home versus Windows Pro, privacy and analytics, and how you can find out who is targeting you for advertising on Facebook and Google. Lots to do here, so let's get to it. And I want to thank our newest supporters here on the channel, Harley Howes, who gave via the donor box page, and Jack Fernari, who signed up under the new YouTube membership program. I want to thank both of them for their support of the channel, everyone who's been contributing on an ongoing basis as well, along with everyone who watches on an ongoing basis too, because all of those things equal channel growth. And now it's time for a couple of things that are on my mind, and this is week 102 of me doing this as a full-time occupation. And I am once again concerned about the future of Patreon, more so now than ever before, especially because the CEO is telling CNBC that the business model is not sustainable. Yes, the business model that a lot of creators depend upon for their living, uh, the CEO is saying is not a sustainable model moving forward. Uh, He's citing a lot of growth in uh, not only the number of people contributing, but the amount of money they are paying out. It looks like they are up $1 million Uh, new patrons over the last year, people paying into other creators. And he's also saying the company is on track to pay out $500 million, about a half a billion dollars to creators uh, in the coming year as a result of that growth. And that is no longer sustainable in his words. Uh, This prompted a number of users to respond. And this tweet uh, got the attention of the Patreon CEO. Uh, Dan Olson here says that the Patreon as the corporate entity has come to see its core product, the payment processing, as a burden, a loss leader that they've used to get you into the store. And now they're going to figure out how to get you to open your wallet up for better margins. And I think this actually speaks more to uh, some bad business practices on the part of the company from the get-go that are bringing us to the point that we are at now. Uh, This tweet actually got the CEO to start talking, and there was a whole Twitter thread that you can find uh, at the URL you see on screen. Uh, Conti says that startups require capital to keep up with their users. They're now serving over 100,000 creators, which is surprisingly low in my opinion. I would expect there to be more. And 3 million patrons of those creators. He said they are requesting literally thousands of features from us. Everything from fulfilling merchandise to team accounts to new currency support. And this got me to thinking, how many of these 100,000 creators are actually demanding all of these features versus just using Patreon as a payment processor? I know I use it as a payment processor primarily. I also know that everyone I support on Patreon is largely using it for that as well. Occasionally, they'll post something to say, hey, check out this patron-only thing, a little preview video or something like that. But by and large, it is a payment processor for most of the people that I support. And I would imagine probably most of the 100,000 out there are also using it just for that. Again, the core business model here. And if you think about the fact that they're going to be paying out half a billion dollars, 
That means Patreon's gross profit here uh, is going to be approximately $25 million this year. Now, this, of course, is the gross profit before expenses and employees and all the other things that they have to pay out. But still, a $25 million gross profit for 100,000 customers is actually, I think, a pretty good business uh, if you weren't tied up with a bunch of venture capital, which Patreon is tied up with here. So they've taken... Uh, well over $100 million in venture capital money. This is not a loan, uh, but these are investors who, in exchange for giving the company money, take a good chunk of the company in exchange in the hopes that the company will get sold, maybe to Google or to Facebook or Twitch or something, and they can all cash out when the company sells for a billion dollars or something. But right now, they don't have a billion-dollar business. They have a very sustainable business for what they do, Uh, But they're not finding success trying to expand the profit-making potential here. And this is the roadblock uh, that Patreon is currently facing. The business is actually very sustainable, but it's not sustainable given the fact that Jack Conti got into bed with all these venture capitalists who are demanding more and more out of the company in order to get that company sold so they can recoup their investment. Now, having all this venture capital money led to some pretty poor decisions. Because they didn't have to worry about what things cost, they just kept rolling out features when users requested them, irrespective of how many people wanted those features. So when they uh, put together their payment options, uh, they have added a couple of different ways in which people can support their creators. Now, if I remember correctly, uh, the per-creation option here Uh, was the first thing that they offered. So what that means is that as a YouTube creator, I could say to all of you, every time I post a new YouTube video, I'm going to charge you whatever you pledged for that video. So for example, if you say, I'll pay you a dollar for every episode, uh, and I did five episodes that month, uh, then you would be paying five bucks at the end of the month. Basically, it would uh, bundle up all those pledges and uh, charge the credit cards at the end of the month there. Now, I didn't like that per creation option because I produce so much content. I figured it would be easier for people just to pledge a monthly amount and then have that charge out at the end of the month. So that's what I went with, and that was a good option that they added. And one of the cool things about how Patreon works is that they bundle the charges together. So let's say you're giving a dollar to me and a dollar to nine other uh, creators. They'll charge you $10 and not uh, $1 10 times. And that's a significant savings on fees because uh, if somebody just gives me a credit card and I charge them a dollar, about 30 cents or so goes to the credit card processor as part of their fixed rate transaction fee. And then there's also a percentage that's taken off the total amount. So when you give a dollar, a large percentage of that contribution goes to credit card fees. And what Patreon did by uh, bundling these things together at a set time of the month was that uh, you can actually get a little less of a fee charged on that $1 contribution because that 30 cent fee is applied to the $10 that you uh, contributed versus having 30 cents coming out of every dollar you contributed. I did a whole video on the math here, uh, which I'll link to down below, which goes into more detail. But this is really the strength of Patreon was that bundling and making uh, microtransactions a little bit more uh, profitable for the creators uh, because there conceivably could be less fees charged on those small contributions from people who contribute to many creators. But then they got a lot of people asking for more things here and they added a new thing called Charge Upfront uh, where they would charge uh, the patron the minute that they made a pledge for immediate access. 
But here's the thing. This was probably not requested by a majority of their uh, patron people out there. It was probably a smaller percentage of the total. And they didn't charge extra for this service, which I think they probably should have done. Granted, it would have created some friction, but nonetheless, it cost them more to do this because now they've got a whole different uh, thing that they have to account for uh, when they're charging not at the end of the month, but in the middle of the month whenever people are signing up for something. And you can imagine how complex this gets uh, the more people start uh, contributing to charge upfront patrons. And this led to some uh, really poor decisions that Patreon made. And I'm going to talk about this in the context of when their last funding round came through. So in September of 2017, they got close to $60 million from a venture capital fund. And then less than two months later, they're changing their fee structure. And this almost blew up the entire Patreon system because what they wanted to do was get rid of that uh, bundling, that aggregation, uh, because people were doing charge up front and it was getting so confusing for them and they were spending a lot of man hours trying to figure out uh, how to bill out all these fees. So in their infinite wisdom, they decided the best way to handle this was to just take the fee structure and put it onto the people contributing. So they would charge you the service fee. And then because they were getting rid of the aggregation, uh, if you were contributing 10 bucks to uh, 10 creators, a dollar each, uh, you would be spending now 30 plus cents per creator in fees. Uh, so your $10 contribution would go up substantially just to pay these credit card fees out. And that was their solution. And if you read the article that they posted talking about how wonderful this idea is, you wonder what planet they were on. I'm looking at this on vacation thinking this is going to be a disaster. And sure enough, it was a disaster. While I'm sitting there on my front porch enjoying my coffee, I saw the blog article. I then went over to my Patreon account and I was losing uh, patron after patron, many saying, I'm sorry, Lon, but this is just ridiculous. I can't uh, justify these costs to uh, continue contributing to so many different creators. And I didn't blame them. So I had to really hustle to find some other solution. Now, serial entrepreneur Jason Calacanis, who does a lot of angel investing into startups, uh, makes a good point here. He's saying that uh, the business model really is difficult. And uh, he heard no less than 20 pitches over the last couple of years for a better Patreon, but none have really come about. It's a very challenged model, uh, which is why Patreon is under so much pressure from their investors, because the model is so challenging to scale up to a billion-dollar operation, uh, given the constraints that they're in. But again, if they were focused on running a good business, they would have said, look, this charge up front thing is a big convenience to these creators. We need to charge a higher fee because of the cost it's going to be for us to offer that feature. There's a carriage cost here uh, for creators that are doing more, and they probably should charge more. Now, there are examples of this in the industry. So the Square credit card processor, for example, will uh, send your money to you for free in one to two business days after they take out their transaction fees. But if you want your money right this second, you can pay a percentage of what they owe you and they will get it to you right now. They obviously had a lot of requests from customers for this and they looked at what it would cost to implement that feature and they charge a fee uh, for that convenience. There's nothing wrong with that, especially when it goes above and beyond the core functionality of the product. I don't see any issue with this and I don't know why Patreon didn't start charging for uh, this kind of feature and other features that they've been implementing and hustling over that I think probably a very small percentage of their overall patron base actually uses. And as a result of this, we're all going to suffer when the company goes kaput or has to find some way to 
uh, make more money because they uh, got themselves into a model that is completely unsustainable. Now, I've talked about this in the past, but this is an example of doing the payment processing correctly. And if you are using uh, Patreon primarily as a payment processor and want to diversify, I've had a lot of good experiences so far with DonorBox. Uh, This is a service that will do uh, monthly contributions or it will do one-time contributions. Uh, They uh, basically charge based on when the person contributes for the first time. So if somebody goes on to DonorBox and uh, pledges 10 bucks, it'll charge them 10 bucks right away. And then 30 days later, a month later, essentially, they'll charge the next 10 bucks. It supports PayPal and uh, Apple Pay and Stripe and everything else. And what's nice is that uh, they don't run the payment processing themselves. They have you sign up for a Stripe account and a PayPal account, and they basically collect the data and send it over to those payment processors. They were smart about this. They decided not to build their own payment processing system from scratch. Uh, They're going to send you over to something that works just fine. It's very easy to get everything connected, and they don't have to maintain any of that, uh, nor have to worry about any of the security issues that come into play with collecting credit card information. Because don't forget, uh, Patreon also got hacked a little while ago, and some of that user information was compromised. Uh, This stuff is completely not stored uh, on the donor box servers. And the pricing on this is pretty reasonable also. So if you are under $1,000 in contributions a month, uh, you have no charges from DonorBox at all. It's completely free to use. You do have to pay your credit card transaction fees, of course, and those get taken out directly by PayPal or Stripe. Now, if you go over $1,000 a month, they charge you 1.5% of what you brought in as a service fee, uh, which I think is very reasonable, especially when you look at Patreon, uh, which charges you 5% on top of your credit card fees. Uh, now, of course, there is some efficiency with Patreon if you give to me and 10 other creators, but I'm finding after using DonorBox now for almost two years that it's about a wash here. Yes, some contributions have a little bit more in fees taken out by the credit card processor versus Patreon, but Patreon's fee takes a lot of that out as well. So it really, this for me, has been uh, pretty much a wash here and uh, not a bad way to go with an alternative. Uh, One other thing to look at is that they have been adding features that users have been requesting and they're charging for those features because they are running a sustainable business here. So if you want to integrate automatically with MailChimp, for example, uh, it's eight bucks a month. If you don't want to pay the eight bucks a month, then export your list and do it yourself. Not that hard to do. They also have some employer gift matching here for 40 bucks a month and Salesforce integration for 50 bucks a month. And they looked at this probably saying, well, we've got a small percentage of our users looking for these additional features. Here's what it's going to cost to implement and maintain those. Let's charge a fair price for that. And I'm sure that those who need those features are willing to pay. As for me, it's a payment processor. I'm not paying anything and I'm perfectly happy here. If I wanted those features, I would pay for them. And I think that's pretty reasonable. Now, the developers of this application are not some VC-backed thing. They are a development house that makes applications for other companies. I did a lot of research on these guys when I was putting together my decision to use DonorBox, and they've got a few other apps that are sustaining some income for them as well that are really simple things that are working for them and not going above and beyond uh, what they can afford to make happen. And you can see more uh, on their website there. But this is really, I think, the difference between doing something correctly and building a sustainable business versus this notion of, well, we've got unlimited cash, so let's just spend it, spend it, spend it, and see where we end up. Well, now we're at where they ended up, and I think a lot of creators might get hurt because of it. So what I would suggest, if you are relying on Patreon, is to start looking for alternatives. 
I hope YouTube makes their uh, membership program a little bit more attractive. Right now, they take too much, and there aren't any tiering options and whatnot. Uh, DonorBox, though, I found to be a really good option and something that if you are looking for a simple payment processor is definitely something you should look at and then look at maybe going to email or some other uh, thing to uh, try to communicate out with people that are contributing because there are better options out there that cost less. And I think we all need to be prepared for perhaps an eventual shutting down of Patreon or a degradation in their service to the point where it becomes too expensive to use. And now it's time for some things in the news that caught my eye. And this story was quite entertaining. It looks like AT&T's marketing department is getting creative once again. Uh, They are now going to be adding a 5G E indicator to most modern 4G phones, including the iPhone. And when you are in a network zone that supports LTE Advanced, uh, you will see this 5G E indicator and not a 4G LTE indicator. However, this advanced LTE technology has been in use by Verizon, T-Mobile, and Sprint for quite some time, according to Ars Technica. It's nothing new. It's definitely not 5G, uh, but AT&T's marketing department decided it was time to call it that just to make people think they're getting some really high-tech service here. That led to a lawsuit from Sprint saying that it's not accurate, it's misleading to customers. So we'll have to see where this lawsuit goes. You can read more about that on Wired at the link you see on screen. Now, this behavior reminded me of something from about eight or nine years ago. And sure enough, I found some articles from that period of time when we were switching from 3G networks to 4G. And this gem on Gizmodo was definitely worth a read because AT&T, back in May of 2010, accused T-Mobile of doing the same thing. They were taking the 3G HSPA Plus technology and labeling it 4G on phones. Uh, A year or two after complaining about it, AT&T ended up doing the same thing. I remember my iPhone at the time suddenly said 4G, and I was like, well, my phone certainly didn't upgrade itself. What is all of this about? It was marketing, and that is exactly what's happening now. So I'll have to see how the Sprint lawsuit goes. Maybe if they're not successful, we'll see Sprint and Verizon start labeling 5G on their services too, for the heck of it. That will only confuse customers further. It also might disguise how slow the 5G rollout really will be, because I don't think we're going to see a sizable 5G rollout, at least here in the United States, for probably another three or four years. I might be mistaken, but this is going to be a huge change in technology And clearly they're trying to get some branding out there to make people think that they've already got this tech, even though it's lagging behind. It's probably the motivation behind it. Bottom line, though, is that your phone has not been upgraded. It's still the same old 4G phone you had. They're just calling it something different. And I'm surprised Apple is allowing the carriers to get away with this because it really is misleading. So let's move on now to a Q&A from you, the viewers. And our first question comes in from the last Ginyu, who had a good point about Chromebooks that... Uh, Google is basically going to support Chromebooks for six and a half years from the time that that Chromebook is first released. And then after that, it will no longer get updates, even if the computer is still perfectly functional. And one of the beauties of Chrome OS is that you don't need a very high-end computer to get a good experience out of it. Uh, My mom's been using a low-end Chromebook for a number of years now, and I think she's probably getting close to the uh, end of life on her perfectly useful computer. And he makes a good point here about the Samsung Chromebook 3. It was made in 2015, but if you bought it in 2018, the updates will stop in 2020 regardless. And I went over to the uh, Chromebook auto update policy site, which you can see linked down here. Uh, They've got a list of every Chromebook that's on the market and when the support will end for it. 
Uh, and sure enough, you can go out right now and buy yourself a Samsung Chromebook 3 with 4 gigs of RAM and 16 gigs of storage, a very capable Chromebook. Uh, but if you bought that now, uh, you will no longer be able to get updates on that Chromebook in uh, about three years. So you won't have the full six and a half years, even though you bought the Chromebook right now. You're going to get about three or so, and that's just based on how they uh, calculate this end of life. And I can understand why. It's probably a lot to support a lot of different hardware types, so they probably want to uh, move on when those computers stop selling. It's probably not very profitable to support a $188 computer over a long period of time. I was also reading in some of the fine print that this might actually apply to the first hardware type of that particular Chromebook when it's released. So some of these generic brands we've seen, uh, maybe they just get released now, but the hardware platform was released two or three years prior, and that would uh, shorten the life of that Chromebook as well. This is going to be a problem, I think, as more consumers begin adopting Chromebooks. I am seeing this uh, both in my personal experiences with people that I know, but also with the amount of attention my Chromebook videos have been getting here lately. Uh, there's a lot of people shopping for these things, and this might be a rude wake-up call um, if they find out that the computer they just bought is no longer supported. Uh, so we'll have to see if uh, Google changes their uh, strategy on this as time goes on. Then I was curious, what do other manufacturers do? So it looks like Apple runs on a similar schedule, believe it or not. Uh, so if you look at Mac OS Mojave, the latest version of Mac OS, uh, they support the mid-2012 MacBook Pro or, or later, not earlier. So if you have a computer that's about seven years old, you will not be installing Mojave on it. Uh, my father has an iMac, an older one, that he got about eight or ten years ago. It still works just fine, uh, but because it is too old for Mojave, he's not going to be getting uh, the new OS. It's still getting some updates, but that will probably end at some point. So, you know, it's still usable, but uh, he's got himself now a useless paperweight and a nice display that he can't use with anything else. So there you go. So Apple is kind of following a similar trend with much more expensive hardware. Now, Windows is a very different story. Now, of course... Uh, hardware is different than software, so yes, the computer you bought 20 years ago is probably not going to get any updates for BIOS vulnerabilities or other hardware issues, but if the hardware is working and it meets these very minimum requirements, uh, you will likely get that computer to work with Windows 10. Windows 10 requires only a 1 gigahertz processor. Uh, you need 1 gigabyte of RAM if you're running the 32-bit version of Windows, which is still supported. Uh, you can even get it going on an 800 by 600 display. Probably won't be the most fun way to operate a computer, but it's still supported uh, by Microsoft. And I think if you look back at Microsoft's history, they've probably supported legacy hardware better than uh, just about any software maker out there. That's starting to change now with Windows 10. They're now pushing people to uh, using virtual machines for really old Windows software. But for a while... Uh, the oldest Windows software would run on a relatively modern Windows operating system. So just a little food for thought here on how uh, different computers in the industry will be supported over time. If you plan on buying a computer now and not getting another one for 10 or 15 years, maybe Windows is the better way to go. And of course, I would be remiss if I didn't mention open source alternatives. So you can, of course, find some uh, really low-impact Linux installations that can install on those Windows PCs. If you decide Windows isn't your thing anymore, that's going to be a little more difficult on a uh, Chromebook just because they really lock down what you can install on it. 
but you might have some success running a Linux operating system on an old Mac. So there are some options out there for some of that aging hardware if you don't want to do the Windows thing. Next question comes in from Al Vanderlaan. This came in a while ago. I just hadn't found a good spot to slot this question in, but it was one that I wanted to get to. And that is about the differences between Windows 10 Home and Pro. What is Pro going to get you if you pay a little bit extra for that upgrade? Uh, So if we look at the security features, they are largely in line between Home and Pro, but Pro does have something called BitLocker, which allows you to encrypt your hard drive for better security. If that's important to you, then Pro might be the way to go. Uh, Pro is really designed for business environments, so if you are using an Active Directory server and you want to log your computer into that, uh, you will probably need a version of Windows Pro to do it. Uh, One thing that uh, they also have are some educational options. Apparently, there's a Windows Take a Test app. I never even heard about this before, but it's used quite heavily in education, I guess. And that is not available on Windows Home, uh, but it is on Pro. So if you're using any of these uh, business features for, again, Active Directory and other uh, networking that goes into running a Microsoft network, you might want to look at going to Pro versus Home. A few of the Windows fundamentals here are also worth talking about. Uh, specifically Remote Desktop and Client Hyper-V. So Remote Desktop is something that I use quite a bit around the house, believe it or not, because that allows you to uh, log into another Windows computer with the uh, Remote Desktop Protocol, RDP. And if you have a Windows 10 Pro computer, you can have that be a host for an RDP client. So if I wanted to pop into my gaming machine from upstairs or something, uh, that's a way that I would do that. You cannot run the RDP host on a Windows Home installation, but uh, you can, of course, get third-party software that does the same thing, and oftentimes you can get a free version like VNC or something like that as an alternative. Now, another cool feature of Windows 10 Pro is that you have Hyper-V included in the package, Uh, That is Microsoft's virtual machine software. And what that allows you to do is boot up another operating system inside your running Windows 10 installation. So you don't have to format your hard drive or dual boot or partition. Uh, You can basically just create your own little virtual computer and boot up an old version of Windows, for example, or boot up some uh, Linux stuff that you want to play with. Kind of a fun way to get into other operating systems without, again, having to use a dedicated PC or give up some of your existing PC for that function. Uh, There are more advanced versions available in Windows Server, or you can get something like VMware Workstation. But uh, if you want to try something for free, or at least as part of whatever you paid for Pro, Hyper-V here in its client iteration might be worth playing around with. Again, the upgrade from Home to Pro is about $99, so it's not inexpensive, but if you need some of these features, then it might be worth looking at. But I think for most consumers who are not using these features, uh, Home should be good enough. It will perform pretty much the same as Pro. And this next question from Michael Murphy makes some very good points on balancing privacy versus improvements to services. And I think it's definitely worth a read. So take a minute to pause here and read through it. But Michael here basically talks about how they look at how users are using a website to make it better, find bugs, uh, improve the workflow and everything else that goes into a website. And too often we hear about all these privacy issues, but sometimes we don't really need to know anything about you to understand how your site might be used, or there might be some disambiguated analytics data that helps us understand how people are using the site. And a great example of that is what I do every day on my YouTube analytics, trying to figure out 
the age of my audience, for example, and what are, uh, I'm, who am I talking to? And uh, making sure that the content I'm making is relevant to a majority of the audience that is being sent to my videos. I wanna make sure that I'm able to provide you the content that you're looking for. That's really important. It's also important to know where in the world you are coming from. So, for example, I used to only give weights out in uh, the imperial standard that we use here in the U.S., but I learned that only about half my viewers are from the U.S. The other half are on the metric system. So I started including metrics in my uh, dimensions and weights when I'm talking about a product because of the analytics telling me, hey, guess what, Lon? You're not all from the U.S. here. You got to give them the information that is relevant to them. Another thing that's also very useful for me as a consumer of video on YouTube is that Uh, The data that YouTube collects about me helps find content that I'm interested in. I don't waste as much time watching or digging through things I'm not interested in. Generally, when I log on to YouTube, there's something I want to watch because it's aware of what my preferences are. All of those things I don't think are that bad. Uh, There are some things that do concern me, of course, especially when this information is given out to others and is uh, not always clear as to how it's being used. That stuff does bother me. And what I wanted to do real quick is walk through some ways that you can see how your information is being used both on Facebook and Google. Uh, Part of what's happened with the GDPR legislation in Europe is that uh, these companies are getting a little bit better about sharing information about what they know about you. And I think Facebook's done a pretty decent job of this. It doesn't make the the problems that come out of this privacy issue go away, but it does give you some insight as to who's got you and what they're trying to do with you. And I'm going to walk through how you can see some of this information on both Facebook and Google. Again, this doesn't solve the problem completely, but this is an improvement. So let's take a look at Facebook first. So what you want to do first is click on this little arrow that you can see up there. That will bring down another option and you wanna click on settings. And when you click on settings, you'll be brought to this screen. Uh, Then what you wanna look for is this little section here called ads. So I'm going to click on that right now. And inside of the advertisers section here is some interesting stuff. And there are three things or four things that you might want to take a look at on here. Now, the first thing we're gonna look at here is the contact list added to Facebook option. Uh, What these are are advertisers that uploaded a list that you were on to Facebook. Facebook, in turn, took that list and matched it to users of Facebook, and that gives these advertisers the ability to display ads just to those people. Now, it doesn't mean that every person on the list is going to get an ad, uh, but Facebook will, if they have the right information matched, present ads to those people, and it's a pretty uh, accurate way to finally target your list of existing customers, for example, but it doesn't restrict anyone from uploading a list that they bought from somewhere else. So for example, I have never been to Jim Butler Maserati, uh, but he's got my name and he uploaded the the, uh, list to Facebook to try to advertise to me. Uh, The same can be said about a lot of these other advertisers here as well. I've never set foot in San Antonio, let alone a Land Rover dealer there. Uh, But this is an example of how your information gets sold and repackaged and uploaded. And this also gives Facebook some signals as to uh, who you are, because maybe if they see a lot of uh, these car 
things, uploading my information, they may assume that I have an interest in cars, right? So that's something that goes on there. Uh, so you can see a lot of car stuff on here. These are my uh, wedding photographers. I'm still in touch with them, and they have a tutorial business that they've been doing, so they must have uploaded my list um, that way, or their list with me on it that way. Uh, Nintendo is on the list as well. Now, if I don't want Jim Butler to advertise Maseratis to me, I can remove him right here, and he's gone. Um, so he will no longer be able to target me directly. But this does give you an idea as to who is... Uh, uploading you to a uh, Facebook list and then sending ads from there. Now, if you're not comfortable with this and you don't want anyone ever to target you based on a customer list, they now give you the ability to turn this off. So I could say, uh, not allowed, and that will now no longer allow me to be targeted um, based on people who find me on Facebook. So that's the second thing you might want to look at if this practice concerns you. Uh, The next thing here is a website or app you've used. Let's click on that real quick. Um, So, for example, I've got the Duncan app installed on my phone and the Starbucks app. And because I have those apps installed on my phone and I ran them, uh, what usually happens here is that Facebook uh, drops a cookie uh, on that. Or if I authenticate through Facebook, it's knowing that I have a Facebook account attached to that app. Uh, That's another way that an advertiser can uh, link me up that way. Uh, Likewise, if I visited a website, uh, they can install a cookie on the website, and if they're able to uh, match me up as a logged-in Facebook user, I can start getting advertisements, for example, from Runner's World. In fact, I think I went on Runner's World to get a gift subscription for my wife or something. I don't run myself. I do walk quite a bit, but I don't run. Uh, But yet I see some ads from Runner's World every once in a while, and that's because they dropped a cookie on me. Uh, One way to avoid this cookie dropping is to install an ad blocker, which may prevent some of those cookies from executing. So that might be one tip to look at there. Uh, But again, you can see just how these things kind of come about. And uh, if you ever visit one of these websites, you may suddenly start seeing things coming from that advertiser. But we don't know what else Facebook is doing with this data to try to figure out who you are. Uh, But there are some ways you can look at what Facebook thinks you are here in the Your Interest section. And what I can do here is see some of the things that it thinks I'm interested in. And if I remove one of these things, it would make it harder for someone to advertise for me based on a certain thing. So, for example, uh, facility management is on my list of interests because I used to work in a company that was selling items in the facility management industry. Uh, So people might be advertising me about toilet paper and uh, paper towels or whatever. I can remove that here, and that will remove me from that list. Uh, We also ran a lot of trucks, so it thinks I might be interested in truck driving. But if I'm not, again, I can remove that. Uh, But this gives you a good idea as to what uh, Facebook thinks about you and how it might be uh, recommending you perhaps to advertisers. Because when somebody goes in to advertise, they'll say, hey, I want people in uh, this state who earn this much and have an interest maybe in small business and salesforce.com. And that would Uh, have those ads start showing up to you. And then uh, if you click on one of these things, it'll show you the kinds of ads that are currently running uh, to people who meet that uh, description. So this is probably a good way to try to figure out what Facebook knows about you. It's also a good way of figuring out perhaps 
uh, how they're able to determine these things based on what information they are collecting about you as well. It's pretty scary that all this happens, but at least now there's a bit of a window into it, uh, so you can browse around here and uh, maybe fine-tune some of your ad choices here or try to figure out perhaps who might be uh, sending your information to Facebook without your permission. Now, Google has a similar screen that you can go and visit. It's at adsettings.google.com. And if you go there, you can see some of the things that they know about you and make some decisions about the kinds of ads you want to see. Uh, So here you've got the option to turn off personalized ads completely. Now this will apply though only to Google. It doesn't apply to some other ad network. It certainly doesn't apply to Facebook. Uh, But if you spend most of your time on YouTube, this might apply there. Uh, And as you can see right now, I've got ad personalization on and it's also using my activity from other Google services to try to determine what my interests are. Again, it's doing something similar to what we think Facebook is doing in that it's looking at your behavior and then deciding what uh, your interests are that they can present to advertisers. Uh, So what it knows about me is that I'm 35 to 44 years old. That's accurate, primarily because I told Google that was my age when I signed up for whatever service I was using. Uh, It also knows my gender here. And you see a couple of websites on here, and not too many because, again, I have been running an ad blocker for most of the time. But when we were looking at cars the other day, for example, uh, Toyota um, wasn't working properly with my uh, ad thing activated, my ad blocker activated. So as a result, I got a cookie dropped on my account here, and now they're able to target ads to me. But I could turn them off to not see any more Toyota ads Although it will stay off for at least 90 days, it doesn't mean they're not going to come back later. So sometimes you uh, don't have the ability to hide from them completely, unfortunately. Uh, So you can do that with some of the sites that have targeted you. And then you can go down into your list of interests, for example. So if I decided that I'm not into event ticket sales because I never leave the house, I can turn this off. And now Google doesn't think I'm interested in that anymore. And I won't see ads that uh, are addressing me as an event uh, interested person. So that's something to look at. But what they also let you know here at the bottom of the screen is that they're not the only ad network out there. So uh, if you go off of YouTube, for example, and you're just on a website, you may not see ads generated by Google. Google's just one of many ad platforms that are out there. Some of these ad platforms have joined something called Ad Choices. And what you can do with Ad Choices is click on that link and it will go through and Uh, take a look and see if you are opted in or out to various networks. Now, when I ran this, unfortunately, most of those networks didn't give me a yay or a nay, but some of them did. Uh, So, for example, here, if I don't like the Bizarre Voice Network, for example, I can turn them off and just opt out of that network. Uh, But this really is a game of whack-a-mole. Look how many different ad networks there are. And these are just the ones that are participating in ad choices. Many, many, many others do not. Uh, Many of these ad networks are also dropping cookies on you at the same time that Google and Facebook are as well. So it is really, really difficult, even with an ad blocker, to hide your activities on the Internet. Uh, Security researcher Brian Krebs tweeted the other day that he actually runs all of his web browsing inside a virtual machine that we talked about a few minutes ago just to isolate himself from all of this stuff. But you cannot hide. If you have uh, visited a website, there is a cookie getting dropped there that... Uh, gives advertisers some indication as to what your interests are. And when they aggregate enough of these cookies, they can really fine-tune how these ads work, and they all know quite a bit about you. So in our Q&A for you this week, I would love for some of you to run some of these little uh, advertising features on your accounts and let me know what you found. Did anything surprise you about 
who uploaded you or what kind of interests these platforms think you have. How accurate were they? Uh, let, let me know down in the comments below and we can have a fun discussion about that. So this week on the channel, we've got a couple of things I plan on looking at. Uh, we're going to have my review of that video thing that I was talking about. Uh, right after I finish shooting this, I'm going to run to the other end of town and try some high bandwidth experiments with it. So we'll have a full overview of how you can stream anywhere you want. Uh, with this device. Pretty cool thing to play around with. I always like getting some of this production stuff into play with every once in a while. We're also going to have a review of this little shuttle mini PC. Uh, It's got a full-blown, I think, i5 or i7 in there, and it's a pretty good performer, actually. So we'll be taking a closer look at this shortly, so be on the lookout for that. A lot of you were interested on my um, unboxing of that computer. We'll probably have one or two other things as well, so stay tuned. Always fun things come through the studio here. Now, if you want to support the channel, which we just talked about, you can at lon.tv support. You've got many options there for supporting the channel if you wish. We also have my ongoing relationship with Plex, where if you sign up for a free Plex account, no credit card required, we get a small uh, commission for that. So check it out if you're interested in serving yourself your own media. We have other channels as well. My extras channel for unboxings and supplementary content. I might do that uh, test on that channel in a second as well of the video go thing. Uh, We also have my podcast, which offers audio versions of this show. Uh, We also take portions of this show and upload it to my Snippets channel to make them more search-friendly. And then we have my live streams, which you can find at lon.tv slash live streams for archives of what I did. And again, that uh, playlist grew by five this week because we had a bunch of stops and goes with that video go as we were figuring it out. So if you want to check out that process, you can watch uh, there and get get a little insight into that. Now, if you uh, like what I do and want to get notified every time we upload something, I suggest you click on the bell to do that. And, of course, we have other ways to engage with the channel. My email list, the Facebook page, the Facebook group, which grows by a few every day. I think we're getting close to 600 people in there now. And then we have the store where I sell things that I purchased to review here on the channel and I'm now getting rid of. That's how my business works. I buy things, review them, and sell them. And that's also why uh, we don't review very expensive smartphones because I couldn't stay in business if I bought expensive things to resell on there. But you can often find a good deal on some of the things that I did purchase to review here on the channel Uh, They're pretty much good as new, just been opened and tested, of course. And you can get notified every time I add something to the store by signing up for my store alert email at the link that you see on screen. And that is going to do it for this week's weekly wrap-up. We covered a lot this week, I think. I'm not sure how long this one is, but it feels like it might be one of the longer ones I've done. I want to thank you all for your continued support of the channel uh, by contributing, but also by watching and commenting and giving me suggestions and opinions. All of those things do matter. I do read every comment if I'm not able to respond to everyone. Uh, So please keep all of that feedback coming. And I look forward to providing more content for you throughout this week and hopefully many more to come. Until next time, this is Lon Seidman. Thanks for watching. This channel is brought to you by the Lon.TV supporters, including Gold Level supporters Chris Allegretta, the Four Guys with Quarters podcast, Tom Albrecht, Anuj Zaveri, and Kalyan Kumar. If you want to help the channel, you can by contributing as little as a dollar a month.
Head over to lon.tv slash support to learn more. And don't forget to subscribe. Visit lon.tv slash s.